0: is a podcast about Jeopardy! Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy! podcast where normally two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy! episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle and this week Emily's on vacation, we were unable to secure a guest host, so rather than have me monologue through the recaps and analysis of this first week of the Jeopardy high school reunion tournament, we're going to do a thing we did uh, roughly two years ago or a year and a half, at least where we have an episode that we, uh, we bring back a couple of deep dives from the back catalog. We like to mention our back catalog. So it would probably do, uh, some of our maybe newer listeners, a service to, to bring back some of the deep dives that we've done. So we have two lined up for you that we chose that we enjoy. My deep dive on jazz history and uh, Emily's deep dive on Arthuriana. And we included the quizzes in there too, because we think that's a lot of fun. Uh, So next week, we'll be back with a normal episode and we'll be kind of recapping the first two weeks of this um, high school reunion tournament. But for now, we hope you enjoy these uh, gems from the back catalog. When Quincy Jones came to LA, he didn't know sunset, but he knew of Central Avenue hub of this music style, and now of a festival for it. Sheila guessed what is hip-hop, but that's jazz. Mm-hmm. That's jazz. Jeez. So I, 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 I kind of went back and forth on which way to go with this. I was like, do I talk about Quincy Jones specifically, or do I just talk about jazz? So I'm just going to talk about jazz. So this, you know, we might call it a deep dive. This is going to be one of those more, like, overview kind of dives. Because I know a lot of us know some things about jazz, and some of us know quite a few things about jazz but i want to give like kind of a timeline so that we can really put jazz into like a, a into its actual temporal context uh cuz there are different kinds of jazz uh evolutions of jazz throughout the last 100 uh, plus years and understanding where those actually fit into like american cultural history is pretty important to actually understand understanding why jazz like sounds the way it sounds and then how it actually played in. So um, I'm going to kind of do like a history, a jazz history deep dive. Nice! So here we go. The earliest kind of jazz really emerged in the early 20th century, 1900s into the 1910s. Uh, it's in the 1910s you know, toward the end of that decade that we really get the idea of Jazz as a real distinct form of music that, you know, has certain characteristics in a certain style. And uh, that eventually led to the other kinds of jazz that we have. Um, But if we want to look back at the roots of jazz, obviously, uh, you got to look at the African roots because jazz. I mean, I'm going to I'll start out by saying like jazz was created by black people, created by African-Americans perpetuated by African Americans advanced by African Americans uh, is very much uh, integral to African-American culture throughout the 20th century looking at the like the roots of it there are uh, musical roots from essentially slave music right the blues which evolved from field haulers and African-American folk songs as well as the spirituals that that uh, enslaved people would sing in the fields and also use as kind of a coded language. These early forms of music that were common amongst African Americans in the latter half of the 19th century contributed to the development of jazz not only because it, it was kind of like a, a sort of unifying style among uh that subculture, but also because they were able to incorporate African musical style into those things, which if we think about that, that speaks to rhythm. And the importance of rhythm, particularly polyrhythms, which is kind of the idea of one rhythm being imposed on top of another. So, if you don't know what a rhythm is, a rhythm is simply a pattern of sound, and usually a repetitive or a repeated pattern of sound. And so, jazz we often think of as having a very complicated rhythmic uh, structure, rhythmic kind of identity, and it comes from the African tradition. If you look at the European tradition, the classical music tradition, rhythm was not particularly complex. At all, it could. It was always like on a beat, halfway in between a beat. That was it. I mean, I guess you could look at Chopin and get have an argument about that, but that's not what this is about. And then also that African root, bringing in the real like expressive vocal quality into playing. You know, coming from the European tradition, you played an instrument to make it sound like the instrument, right? The characteristic mm-hmm. sound of the instrument was the was the goal, but. These, uh, like African Americans who were taking these classical instruments and playing it, playing their own music on it, they wanted to get that kind of vocal quality. They wanted it to sound like them if they were singing. Uh, and so that's why we get a very clearly different sound in early jazz and really jazz throughout, uh, its life. Now I've mentioned a couple of times, like, classical tradition. Obviously the instruments that are used come from the European tradition, right? All of the instruments in, in a jazz band were developed in Europe. And when jazz became something that was written, uh, which was not originally, um, it incorporated, you know, the very classical uh, harmonic structures, the, the notation itself, as well as uh, kind of an approach to melody and like song structure Uh, that all comes from, the classical tradition so jazz is really that fusion of, of the European influence and the African influence um, and as jazz progressed it incorporated more influences uh, you know the Latin influence Afro-Cuban uh, and even further along as I'll talk about so we get this style of ragtime in the 1890s and for about 20 years ragtime was very popular ragtime is not jazz we need to be very clear ragtime is not jazz it predated jazz mm-hmm uh, it is primarily a piano style, a solo piano style, and it incorporated military march-like steady time in the left hand and syncopated, or ragged, melodies in the right. Uh, and so this also kind of shows off the African and European mix, right? Because it has that uh, really like straightforward kind of left-hand march sound, uh, as well as the polyrhythms in the right hand. Uh, Scott Joplin is the name to know with ragtime. King of ragtime, most well-known ragtime composer. Scott Joplin considered himself to be simply the next in line of, like, great classical pianists. He considered himself, uh, the, the logical progression from Chopin and Liszt into, you know, this new 20th century kind of sound. He considered ragtime to just be the new style within the classical tradition. He wasn't trying to necessarily make, like, a popular form, uh, even though that's when it became. Uh, After that, we get Dixieland, which is the actual early jazz, you know, developed within the early 1900s and maintained popularity into the 1920s. I mean, you can still hear Dixieland, but when I say maintained popularity, I mean, like, large popularity. Uh, It is from New Orleans, which is why New Orleans is considered the birthplace of jazz. New Orleans, of course, was is a seaport city, which meant that there was a, a strong mix of cultures. And especially before airplanes, you know, it was the hub of uh, international trade, right? If they're gonna, if you're going to go up the Mississippi or come down the Mississippi, you're going to go through New Orleans. Uh, it also had influence from French, Spanish, West Indian traditions, Catholic, uh, religious attitudes. And it was also a much more... Uh, it, of, of all the American cities... Black people in New Orleans had more freedoms, right? They, they, they had more uh, acceptance. Now, obviously they still faced a whole bunch of oppression, but there were more opportunities for them in New Orleans. Uh, And so all of this like mixed together led to the development of Dixieland, which is just when a group of people would get together with, uh, you know, playing different instruments, typically a trumpet, clarinet, trombone, Piano, tuba, or string bass, banjo, drums. You know, it could be a mix of anything. And they just played. And there, it wasn't written. What they would do was the trumpet would play the melody. Clarinet would add stuff on top. The tuba or the string bass would play bass. Trombone would embellish the bass line. Uh, piano and banjo would do... Uh, harmonic accompaniment, and then the drums would just keep the beat, right? It sounds really simple, but that style was very different from anything you were hearing at the time. It was very focused on improvisation because only one person was actually playing the melody. Everyone else was just adding stuff to it as they saw fit. And they took uh, influence in terms of, you know, like tunes, source material from anywhere. Blues... Religious music, military music, ragtime tunes, even classical music. Whatever they wanted to play, they just played it. And so this was a big focus on collective improvisation, like I said. Everybody is improvising at the same time, usually without any written music. Uh, Some names to remember with this are King Oliver. He was a trumpet player. Obviously, Louis Armstrong began as a trumpet player, even though may be better known as a singer. Uh, Jelly Roll Morton, who claimed to have invented the swing beat. Whether that's true or not, that's what he claimed. So then we get the swing era, also known as the big band era. Uh, this is like the 19, late 1920s up into the 40s. And so this transitioned from Dixieland. So by the end of the 1920s, uh, jazz was developing in two directions that kind of went hand in hand. One was emphasis on the soloist and one was emphasis on the ensemble. Dixieland music, because everyone was improvising at the same time, it had to be really simple in its concept. Because if you're trying to get complicated, but everyone's making stuff up on the spot, it's not going to work, right? Mm -hmm. So in order to accommodate more sophisticated music and include more musicians in an ensemble, written arrangements became necessary and much more common in the late 1920s. At that point, with written arrangements, someone writing down everyone's part and saying you're going to play this at this time, what ended up happening was, you know, a big focus on arrangers and composers, and also uh, a reduction in that collective improvisation. What ended up happening was they would write in places where individual soloists could take a solo, right, and that's where we get uh, a lot of what we think of as like a j- you know a jazz band playing a tune. In the middle, there's a solo break where a couple people get up and take solos and then it goes on to the end. Mm -hmm. That was the format for basically the entire big band era. The ensemble grew into what you might think of. You know, you've got a sax section, a trombone section, a trumpet section, a rhythm section, 15-ish players. And this brought in a new breed of jazz musicians. Many of them were formally educated, you know, classically trained in some way. A lot of them came from brass or military bands And it kind of brought together the musicians who learned by reading music and the musicians who learned by playing music, uh, which, depending on the band, had certain uh, effects on it. Uh, Jazz moved its center from New Orleans to Chicago through this period and then to New York. And that's really when New York became the center of jazz because of the recording companies and publishing houses in those those, uh, cities. And this is also when recording, the recording industry actually gets going, and the spread of radio. Jazz becomes very, very, very popular and learnable throughout the United States uh, during this era. Uh, some of the important people in the swing era are Count Basie, Duke Ellington, uh, Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller, Sarah Vaughan. I mean, there there are a lot. I can name a lot of them. Many of them are band leaders, as well as musicians. Duke Ellington, Count Basie are piano players, as well as Art Tatum. Also, Benny Goodman was a clarinet player. He was also notably white, and the Benny Goodman band was the first integrated jazz band. Hmm. This was jazz's most popular period, and hundreds of bands flourished during this time in the 1930s and early 40s. After the stock market crash of 1929, Swing helped the country through the Great Depression. Right, It, it was an outlet. It was a thing that people could get into. Uh, and also during World War II, it you know, served as a morale boost. As the, the age progressed, as the, these you know, 15, 20 years progressed, the arrangements got, got more and more complex. The, the arrangers tried new things um, and reached new levels of sophistication. Uh, however... Before World War II, the weak economy led to a lot of recording companies going bankrupt, but radio managed to keep jazz, you know, popular. You know, obviously I mentioned Benny Goodman and his band, but jazz in, and in itself, like, helped to show racial integration in a positive light. The musicians especially, like, I'm sure there were plenty of racist jazz musicians during that time, but in a much more, uh, a much higher percentage of jazz musicians Then the general population were uh, very open to racial integration and, you know, good examples as to, like, how to not be racist in that age. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it, it was a good example, and it helped, like, in whatever was accomplished during that time in race relations. After the swing era, we get the bebop era. And this is, you can say, like 1940 to 1955. A lot of, you know, these are overlapping time periods, but uh, bebop followed swing. During World War II, many jazz musicians were drafted and called off to war, uh, which left not a lot of talent at home for the big bands that were still trying to perform. And because of gas shortages, rubber shortages... You know, all of the resources going to the war effort, transportation was difficult, so bands couldn't tour anymore. Uh, there were a lot of midnight curfews because of, um, you know, rationing fuel for electricity and all that. There was also an amusement tax that was uh, a 20% uh, amusement tax at nightclubs that included dancing, as well as a recording ban from July 1942 to November 1943, which meant that nobody could record any new material, which meant a lot of bands broke up. So, in the in the years of World War II, the big bands really like decreased drastically in number, uh, and many of them in quality. And also, kind of because of that, or d- during that, along with that, uh, racism within the music world actually kind of got worse. African-American mus- musicians were usually paid less than their European-American counterparts. That's mm-hmm. st- Imagine that, right? They also had to deal with with prejudice and segregation the whole time, no matter where they were. And because of that, most African-American jazz musicians became increasingly disenchanted with swing music. The more they watched their innovations capitalized on by European-Americans. You think of like the Glenn Miller Band, all white musicians playing pretty watered down jazz, right? That's palatable Mm -hmm. to mass audiences of white people. Uh, And a lot of black musicians were like, well, we got to do something else. This isn't our music anymore. Right. So that's where bebop comes from. Bebop was art music, not entertainment music. If you if you can think of bebop in your head right now, some examples, it's not for dancing. Yep. It's not meant for that. It's just for listening. You sit and listen. Uh, It removed jazz from the mainstream of popular commercial music. Bebop musicians considered themselves artists, not entertainers, and it was a conscious attempt on the part of young African-American musicians to open new channels of improvisation and create a music which reflected the seriousness of their endeavors. Now, I love bebop, but it makes sense where it comes from, right? And so bebop groups are generally small, right? If you think this is kind of a pendulum swinging back out of the large, large ensemble, small groups that we usually call combos, you know, usually five players, maybe. You got a bass drums, piano, and then you got a horn player or two, right? Trumpet, saxophone typically, and that's it. It's very difficult to play. It was designed for improvisation, not elaborate arrangements. Usually, like if you're if you're a jazz musician, you learn the head, you learn the melody and the chord changes. You play the melody once through as a group and then boom, you go into solos for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. And then when the solos are done, you play the melody once and that's it. The tune's over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big focus on improvisation. Also, very high energy, typically. Often very fast tempos, though not always. And uh, much more complicated chord progressions. Uh, so it, it was it was much more about the musicians exploring what the possibilities are, rather than making something uh, super entertaining. And during this time, we get like uh, Minton's Playhouse in in Harlem and Fifty uh, Second Street. This is where uh, a number of clubs on 52nd street like birdland three deuces the onyx club uh really began to shine they were homes for bebop and we got uh players like kenny clark ella fitzgerald dizzy gillespie charlie parker if you need two names for bebop dizzy gillespie charlie parker they're the biggest Mm -hmm. names uh as well as max roach clark terry thelonious monk a lot of these you know next generation of jazz musicians bebop was very much centered in new york Right, uh, so I talked about like where it comes from, uh, and it was also meant to be like kind of a stand against racism. Uh, one particular song that is extremely powerful is Billie Holiday's "Strange Fruit," which I think they just made a movie about. Hmm. I th- I think i that's sticking with me. Uh, but Billie Holiday also gained prominence during this time as a as a singer. After bebop, or, and not really that long after bebop, kind of while bebop was still going on, we, we have kind of a splintering as different musicians want to go different ways. We have cool jazz, hard bop, and modal jazz. And really, it's kind of like cool jazz is one direction, hard bop is another. So cool jazz is where most of the white musicians went Chet Baker, Dave Brubeck, Jerry Mulligan, George Shearing. Cool was a reaction to bebop, right? Because bebop was fast-paced, energetic, raw emotion. And cool was meant to take it back. S- slower paced, more subdued, less emotional, just more controlled. Um, less complicated chord progressions, less uh, intricate melodies. Miles Davis also was a major contributor to cool jazz. He, I mean, he made an album called Birth of the Cool, right? And these were usually bebop combos, too. They were, they were still small groups, but they could include more because there was more arrangement going on in Cool Jazz. So again, we see the pendulum kind of swinging back. So Cool Jazz, while it uses a lot of influence from bebop, and especially in terms of its soloing and improvisation, uh, it's more arranged, there's uh, larger ensembles, and it's kind of easier to listen to. On the other side, we have Hard Bop which came after Cool Jazz and was a reaction to that. So it's the pendulum going back the other direction. Uh, It was a younger generation of musicians looking at Cool Jazz and saying, no, 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 Bebop had it right. We need to go back to that. (laughs) Um, And so this is happening during the 1950s. Cool Jazz is kind of like 1949 into the early 50s. Hard Bop comes in like the mid 50s. And again, it was like looking at these white musicians who were gaining a lot of prominence in the cool jazz realm and saying like, no, no, we got to take this back. This is our kind of music. And so you get Horace Silver, Art Blakey, uh, Cannonball Adderley, Wes Montgomery, Clifford Brown. Uh, And so hard bop kind of goes back to the faster tempos, uh, more raw, emotional kind of sounds, uh, more complicated soloing. And this is also kind of where John Coltrane starts to get his uh, foot in the door. Um, and if you know anything about John Coltrane, his stuff is wild. And then there's modal jazz, which is kind of an outgrowth of both cool and hard bop. Uh, Miles Davis is definitely best known for it, but so is Charlie Mingus and uh, Pharaoh Sanders. This is especially exemplified on Miles Davis's album from 1959, Kind of Blue. It, remi- it is still the best-selling jazz album of all time, and one of the best-selling albums of all time. It's up there with, like, Thriller. Modal jazz is very free. It's very relaxed. It's very open. There are basically no real chord progressions. It's just like, here's an atmosphere, and now you can solo on it, and then we'll play a very simple melody. Uh, it's, it's very, very, like, very relaxed. Yeah. So yeah, we've gone from bebop to cool jazz, to hard bop to modal jazz. And then things get real weird after 1959. This is when we get the avant-garde and free jazz movement. So it's a reaction to cool jazz and hard bop. <laughs> free jazz is a reaction to everything. Free jazz says we're not going to be constrained by pretty much anything. They're, they're saying, you know what, you want to you go to the African roots of our music? Then we need to get rid of european harmonies and chord progressions we need to get rid of european song forms why would we use those we are going to play like our ancestors would make music in a purely improvisational way so free jazz is about improvising on the emotion of the moment we get people like uh, anthony braxton ornette coleman especially ornette coleman is really the big name to know and it just it just pushed the limits of what musicians could play and what audiences could accept. A lot of audiences could not accept it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to a free jazz uh, student concert about ten years ago, and uh, it was it was an experience.
0: In yes. a way, I feel
1: like I've been there ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, check out Ornette yeah. Coleman. Oof.
0: Look at free jazz. Mm-hmm. Give it a chance. Like. Recognize what it is, right? Do not go in expecting to hear a song or at least a Mm -hmm. song in what you think a song is structurally, right? Just let yourself hear what it is and see how you feel. You might not like it and that's okay, but be aware of what it is. What it's not Mm -hmm. is, oh, we'll just play anything because whatever, right? It's not this cavalier attitude of like, whatever, it's jazz. It's very intentional to be rejecting of those European influences like it it is an intentional choice to be that way not just a random chance on the other hand we have fusion which came in like the late 1960s and into the 70s and this is a fusion of jazz influence that like the more you know bebop and almost swing kind of influence or cool jazz influence and rock and we get groups like weather report and players like jaco pastorius also miles davis and his uh, album bitches brew is one of the first fusion albums and it is incredible yeah so fusion kind of came out of a reaction to free jazz because a lot of jazz musicians didn't like the arts for arts sake attitude because audiences didn't like it they wanted to make something that was kind of you know more fun and had got more people involved so they brought in rock and roll they brought in the the electronic instruments they brought in, uh, you know, straight rock beats and that kind of thing, and the kind of like structure and repetition that rock and roll has, and that's where we get, like I mentioned, Weather Report, Jaco Pastorius, Joe Zawinul, among Sorry. another uh, many others, like Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, mm-hmm. uh, were you know big parts of uh, fusion. And then finally, we get into the most recent forms. Basically, nowadays there are two camps. Of jazz musicians, the anything goes people and the traditionalist. Anything goes people think that there should be no labels, no particular preconceived style, and that jazz can be whatever you want it to be, right? It needs improvisation, and that is basically it, right? You can include elements of anything. And that's, you know, and some people feel that way. Uh, And then there's the mainstream jazz, or the straight ahead jazz folk, like Wynton Marsalis. These are the people who think you need to, like, study the jazz tradition. Uh, a lot of them are most like hard bop players were. They kind of have an attitude of like, this needs to be in higher higher art form. We need to study it. We need to learn it. It needs to be sophisticated, uh, and it needs it should be complicated in a way. But they also really focus on the tradition. Uh, and then there are other kinds of music like m bass, which is macro based jazz, <laughs> and it's kind of like free funk. It's a, it's interesting. There's also acid jazz. Uh, which includes elements of R&B and hip-hop, uh, which acid jazz is pretty, pretty sweet. If you've never looked up anything, any acid jazz, you could check it out. It's pretty, pretty fantastic. Jazz has continued to bring people in. Uh, there are many jazz programs at a lot of universities around the country and jazz clubs in most major cities, and there are a lot of people who are still making jazz in a very, very good way. You know, and, and who knows where it's going to go, right? It, Part of one thing that jazz does is it adapts. It grows, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And while it's not in any way the most popular form of music anymore, it continues to incorporate the most popular forms of the day in a way that, you know, is, is authentic to what it is because it, it's always been about, like, personal expression and engaging in what that person is hearing and feeling and the way they want to play that's kind of where we're going uh and and the last one i want to like mention is like the influence of hip-hop on jazz because modern jazz is pretty strongly influenced by hip-hop like robert glasper um herbie hancock he's still killing it and he continues to include hip-hop like new new forms in his music it's incredible and then of course jazz has influenced hip-hop I mean, we wouldn't have any of the popular music we have nowadays without jazz. It all came from jazz in some way. Whether you look at rock Mm -hmm. and roll, that came from rhythm and blues, which came from jazz. right? You look at even hip-hop, you wouldn't have hip-hop without basically the, the disco and funk and soul of the 70s, which came from jazz. And even the, like, uh, improvisational nature of freestyle hip-hop. Like, it you just look back at the, at the jazz influence there. It's incredible. Um, mm-hmm. And you can check out, like, A Tribe Called Quest. Don't know if you ever listened to them, but incredible. I love A Tribe Called yeah. Quest. Anyway, so there we are. That brings us up to today. You can go and hear nice. jazz. You can see jazz. Check it out. I know I talked fast, but there you go. Hopefully, Hopefully that gave you a little more idea of kind of, like, the progression of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was helpful framing. I've encountered a lot of these, but I, I appreciate you kind of putting them into kind of a sequence and like a like a narrative um, to to kind of contextualize it for yeah. uh, for me for us.
0: Yeah, because even even for me, like I've I played jazz since I was thirteen, and you know I'm I'm still like learning how certain things fit into like the American story. You know, and certain Mm -hmm. artists and what they did and why they did it and that kind of thing. So, all right, let's do a quiz.
1: All right, let's do a quiz.
0: So all of these questions are related to jazz somehow. So here we go. Question one. Some ragtime pieces by Scott Joplin were used in the score of an Academy Award winning movie from 1973. The music served to give uh, authenticity to the setting, and it was starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman. What was this film?
1: Robert Redford and Paul Newman. I have a guess, I'm not super confident, but I'm thinking about the song The entertainer, which I think is not Joplin, being associated with the movie The Sting, and that feels like the right time period for me, and that's my best guess, so I'm going with it.
0: You are correct. It is The Sting, and the entertainer is Scott Joplin.
1: Oh, it is Scott Joplin. Oh, okay. Cool. I did not know that. Uh, I obviously didn't know that because I just said the opposite of it.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, it is. Uh, from 1902. It was a Scott Joplin piece. But yes, it is The I Sting. I no idea. Nice. It's
1: so like, it's so associated with The Sting uh, mm-hmm. in like when I've encountered it that I assumed it was like in the style, but written for the movie. Nope. Um,
0: huh. Absolutely not. Yep. You got it. All right. Nice. Question two. In a first season episode of The Office... Steve Carell's character, Michael Scott, says that football is like rock and roll. It's just bam bam boo. And this sport is like jazz, you know? You're kinda doopy doop-doo, doop-doop-doo. It's all downbeat. It's it's in the pocket, like doop-doo doop-doo, da What sport is he talking about?
1: Huh. I mean, I'm sure I've seen the episode. But I don't know. Thinking about baseball. Thinking about golf. In the pocket makes me think of pool, but I don't think I'm not going to go. I'm going to go with golf. Let's go with golf.
0: It is not golf. That is the basketball episode.
1: Oh, oh, okay. Play basketball
0: in the warehouse. I oh, really sorry. Yeah. I thought that would be a thought that would be a sorry. slam dunk for it you. Is, it's,
1: <laughs> it's been a <laughs> Kyle. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I, I I've watched the episode a bunch of times, but not that recently. Uh, I should have been able to get it.
0: There is a there is a certain association between basketball and jazz. Um, I yes, think, like in in multiple like media settings. Um, But yeah, that that clip is extremely funny because it's his voiceover uh, saying that over him just being a complete dunce. Yeah. Uh, All right. Question three. Glenn Miller, J.J. Johnson, and Slide Hampton all made their names as trombone players. In English, trombone exclusively refers to the musical instrument. However, in Spanish, the cognate trombone also means what common office supply.
1: Hmm. What common office supply?
0: I can give you a hint if you need a hint.
1: Yeah, give me a hint.
0: Or annoying word processor assistant.
1: Oh, a paperclip? Yes. Yes. Oh, it sort of looks like a trombone. Doesn't it? Now that I think about it.
0: But you don't think about it before, but yeah, if you I don't I don't know if in New York they have English and Spanish on the products you buy. But every time I get a box of paper clips, it's like paper clips and trombones. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh <laughs> I did not order a bunch of trombones, but okay. Now I have them. <laughs> Alright, uh, twenty points. Question four. A picture book published in 2014 is based on the real life experience of a transgender youth who is a YouTube star, as well as a human rights campaign youth ambassador. What is the name of this book?
1: Oh, um, it's like, my name is jazz or I am jazz or something like that. I feel like I've seen the book. Um,
0: I'll I'll give it to you. It's I am jazz. Yeah, Yeah. Yes. It's I am jazz. Yeah. Nice. All right. Yes, it is. Uh, Also, Jazz has another book called Being Jazz, Life as a Transgender Teen. Cool. If that is something that uh, is important in your life, you could check those out, Mm -hmm. particularly if you know a young person who could perhaps benefit from those insights. You should check those out. Yeah. Uh, All right. You have 30 points, and this is question five. All right. Black History Month is February, as we know. Jazz Appreciation Month, however, is which month? It shares this month with autism awareness, cannabis awareness, soft pretzels, fresh celery, canine fitness, and appropriately, financial literacy.
1: Oh, um, April.
0: It is indeed April. Yes.
1: Yeah. I I knew that it was uh that April is autism awareness. I kind of figured. Um, yeah.
0: I th- I thought I thought that would be the one that that got you there if nothing else
1: yeah
0: that list is wild and that's not that's not even close to the whole list of like what april is the month of but yeah that's hilarious. it's hilarious
1: what there was what, celery did yeah. i hear celery on that list
0: yeah it's national fresh celery month so hope you all got your fresh celery last month anyway
1: <sighs> you're I'm at 40 points all right
0: you're uh, at 40, 40 points. points yay And uh, the final category is Famous Producers.
1: Famous Producers. Oh, that makes me a little nervous. Oh, Wager 25.
0: Okay. Here's your final. Quincy Jones began his career as a jazz trumpeter on the West Coast. However, he quickly became a composer, arranger, and band leader. He wrote arrangements for Frank Sinatra and led his own band on a European tour. However, he is perhaps best known nowadays for his role as a producer, particularly for what late pop royalty?
1: Late pop royalty. I don't actually know it but from the wording i'm going to guess prince
0: ooh i am suddenly realizing that that is a huge misdirect that i put in there no it is not prince it is michael jackson
1: oh okay all right um,
0: i i had i had king of pop in my head and i was like oh that'll be a dead giveaway but no of course prince like oh of
1: course <laughs>
0: I, it didn't even cross my mind. That Prince would it was also very be impressive like, bait. "Oh my god, I'm. I am sorry. I'm sorry that I misled you like that."
1: That's so. You know what? Like, I I appreciate good neg bait. Um, <laughs> that's why I only wager twenty five though. Cause, okay. Like, if I were actually confident in the category, like that, the that's a very knowable thing that I feel like I've probably encountered. So
0: sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Quincy Jones, producer for Michael Jackson through most of his career, instrumental in in creating the Michael Jackson that we that we know or knew. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, okay. Well, you're you're All at fifteen right. points. Uh, gave it to you a little rough there at the end, but you that's know you okay. did we well have on to do have to we have to
1: blow a final question from time to time.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, hell, I I blew that microwave question a few weeks ago, so it's fine. <laughs> And that one one was a layup. That was easy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this one is, there were actually two separate triple stumpers, both of which fit into what I'm doing today. Yes. So in name the movie King at the $800 level, we had first night and the correct response there was King Arthur. We joked around about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then uh, on Friday in novels since 1900 at the $800 level, there's a weapon in the title of this modern updating of an ancient English legend by T.H. White. That one's the sword in the stone. That was a triple stumper as well. Um, Both of those are adaptations of Arthurian legend. Um, Uh So Arthuriana uh, is, is what we're talking about today. I am not talking about the content of Arthur, Arthurian legends themselves. I'm not going to be walking oh. us through like Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot and Galahad and, you know, whatever. Like, we'll, uh, we'll touch on that a little bit. I'm going to assume that everybody has some basic familiarity. There could be a whole deep dive or two or three into those topics. Um, uh-huh. uh, but Arthurian legend is the source material uh, for a huge amount of significant uh, works of literature and film and other stuff. Um, and it comes up a lot uh, in all kinds of expect unexpected places. Um, I certainly can't cover like every like time somebody referenced <laughs> King Arthur, um, but we're going to talk about kind of the development of Arthurian legend um, and some of the major uh Arthurian works, like in, in like in more modern culture as well. So, I learned a new term this week, the Matter of Britain, capital M, the Matter of Britain uh, is an umbrella term for the body of medieval literature and legendary material associated with Great Britain and Brittany and the legendary kings and heroes associated with it. Arthurian legend makes up quite uh, like a like I think the majority of the or you know a, a large amount of the matter of Britain, um, but the matter of Britain is like all the kind of legendary like British stuff. Okay. Um, there are three. There are three matters actually uh the uh, the matter of france is uh legends around charlemagne and then the matter of rome is the body of material derived from or inspired by classical mythology um hmm. so well, yeah. what about the
0: matter of horn
1: i can't speak to that one okay. um
0: i'm just ta- i'm talking about the matter horn oh the matter
1: okay it. <laughs> it's, a joke. it's a bad right. joke sorry i see what you did there with your bad joke all right all right so um Medieval sources of Arthurian legend are divided into pre Galfridian and Galfridian or post Galfridian texts. Galfridus is the Latin form of the name Geoffrey, and so we, uh, we divide Arthurian references and texts into before and then after Geoffrey of Monmouth's pseudo-historical Historia Regum Britanniae, History of the Kings of Britain, uh, which was written in the 1130s. So uh, for pre-Galfridian stuff, uh, the earliest literary references to Arthur come from Welsh and Breton sources. Um, Arthur appears in a handful of Welsh and Latin texts, either as a great warrior defending Britain from human and supernatural enemies or as a magical figure of folklore. Um, And a lot of those references are very sort of brief, kind of oblique, but he's like clearly like a reference point with which people were familiar you know, a hero will be said to be, you know, you know, sh- strong and mighty, but not as much so as King Arthur, you know, and like, mm-hmm. and then they don't go on to say anything else about King Arthur. You know, all these ancient texts, like so much is lost to history that you have to kind of infer a lot based on what remains. Yeah. Um, so um, in the 1130s, we have this uh, Historia text, uh, History of the Kings of Britain, originally called... De Gestis Britonum, On the Deeds of the Britons. Um, It is a pseudo-historical account of British history, and it chronicles the lives of the kings of the Britons over the course of 2,000 years, beginning with the Trojans, founding the British nation, and continuing until the Anglo-Saxons assumed control of much of Britain around the 7th century. It is made up of 12 books, and by book 6, Merlin and young Uther Pendragon appear, um In book seven, we have a series of prophecies attributed to Merlin. Um, book eight continues with Uther's reign. Books nine, 10, and 11 focus on Arthur. Um, maybe some of 12 to the article that I looked at uh, combined the summary of 11 and 12. It was written in Latin, um, but translated quickly into Norman and later other languages and was widely influential. The popularity of Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia and its other derivative works gave rise to a significant number of new Arthurian works in continental Europe during the 12th and 13th centuries, particularly in France. Much of this 12th century and later Arthurian literature centers less on Arthur himself than on other characters, uh, such as Lancelot and Guinevere, Percival, Galahad, Gawain, Iwain, and Tristan and Isolde, uh, that Legendary material pre- at, predates a lot of Arthurian legend, but then gets like incorporated in Tristan as a knight of the Round Table, etc. Hmm. Yeah. So whereas Arthur is very much at the center of the pre-Galfridian material and Geoffrey's uh, Historia itself, um, in the Arthurian romances, that's what we—that's what they call this, like twelfth and thirteenth century development. He gets kind of sidelined. Arthurian figures appear in some of the Lays of Marie de France. But another French poet, Chrétien de Troyes, uh, had the greatest influence regarding the development of uh, Arthur's character and Arthurian legend. Chrétien wrote five Arthurian romances um, between about 1170 and 1190. The most significant for the development of the Arthurian legend are Lancelot, the Knight of the Cart, which introduces Lancelot and his adulterous relationship with Queen Guinevere, and Percival, the Story of the Grail, which introduces the Holy Grail and the Fisher King, and which is another one where Arthur doesn't have so much of a role. Hmm. Uh, up until uh, the early 13th century, continental Arthurian romance was mostly poetic, um, but after that date, the tales begin to be told in prose. Uh, in the 13th century, we have the prose, uh, romance, the Vulgate cycle, also known as the Lancelot Grail cycle, a series of five Middle French prose works, Astor del Saint Grail, the history of the Holy Grail, uh, the history of Merlin, uh, the prose Lancelot, the quest for the Grail, and the death of Arthur. Uh, I'm kind of translating from these. French titles as I go, Mm -hmm. which combine to form the first coherent version of the entire Arthurian legend. The cycle continues to kind of push Arthur to the side, uh, introduces Galahad, expands the role of Merlin. This series of texts was quickly followed by the post-Vulgate cycle, written in like 1230, 1240, which uh, reduced the importance of Lancelot's affair with Guinevere to focus more on the Grail quest. In the late 14th century, an anonymous English poet writes Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, That one's an important kind of chivalric romance, longish poem. The title was given centuries later. It's uh, written in stanzas of alliterative verse. There was like a revival of alliterative verse, I think, at that point. It describes how Sir Gawain, uh, a knight of King Arthur's Round Table, accepts a challenge from a mysterious Green Knight Uh, Who dares any knight to strike him with his axe if he will if he will take a return blow in a year and a day. Um, Yeah, I studied that one way back when I took um, uh, English literature. That was a fun one.
0: Nice. There is a movie out.
1: Indeed. Now, right? Yes. Yes. Yep. (laughs) There is there is a movie out now. I I have notes on it like in my like when we get to 2021. (laughs) Oh, okay, great. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, minimal notes, like, that there is a movie out now. The development of the medieval Arthurian cycle and the character of the Arthur of romance culminate in Le Morte d'Arthur, Thomas Mallory's retelling of the entire legend in a single work in English in the late 15th century. Mallory based his book, originally titled The Whole Book of King Arthur and of His Noble Knights of the Round Table, on the various previous romance versions, in particular the Vulgate Cycle. And he appears to have aimed at creating a comprehensive and authoritative collection of Arthurian stories. That's Le mort d'Arthur. The end of the Middle Ages brought with it waning interest in King Arthur, um, motivated in part by skepticism about the historicity of the texts the legends are mm-hmm. based on. Fair enough. Um, yeah. They were, they are <laughs> pseudo historical. Right. Um, 1634 saw the last printing of Mallory's Le mort d'Arthur for nearly 200 years. King Arthur and Arthurian legend were not entirely abandoned, but until the early 19th century, the material was taken less seriously and was used as a vehicle for allegories of 17th and 18th century politics. In the early 19th century, medievalism, romanticism, and the Gothic revival reawakened interest in Arthur and the medieval romances. Uh, This renewed interest first made itself felt in 1816, when Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur was reprinted for the first time since 1634. Uh, Arthurian legend became a source for poets, uh, most notably Alfred Lord Tennyson, whose first Arthurian poem, The Lady of Shalott, was published in 1832. I had a rejected quiz question about The Lady of Shalott, Hmm. because in the novel Anne of Green Gables, Anne is obsessed with various works of literature, including The Lady of Shalott, and I think gets herself into some danger, um, trying to uh, recreate a scene from the Lady of Shalott, where she uh, floats herself down a river. Anyway, so I thought about asking about Anne of Green Gables, and then I thought, I'm pretty sure I've done that. So, all right. So uh, Tennyson, Lady of Shalott, 1832, Um, Tennyson's Arthurian work continued, reached its peak of popularity with Idols of the King, uh, which reworked the entire narrative of Arthur's life for the Victorian era. It was published in 1859, and it sold 10,000 copies within the first week of publication. We're getting up to uh, Wagner at this point. Uh, Brent, let's bring mm. in a little opera, opera and note that uh, that Wagner used Arthurian legend as source material, uh, most notably uh, Parsifal. Uh, Lohengrin also connects in and Tristan and Isolde it's because, you know, because the Tristan and Isolde legendary material gets brought into Arthurian legend. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, but anyway, the revived interest in Arthurian romance uh, carried over to the United States as well. Sidney Lanier's book, The Boys, King Arthur was published in 1880 and reached wide audiences. That provided inspiration for Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, published in 1889 in which a Yankee engineer from Connecticut named Hank Morgan receives a severe blow to the head and is somehow transported in time and space to England during the reign of King Arthur, where he uh, uses his knowledge to make people believe that he is a powerful magician. Moving right on forward, there's Arthurian imagery in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. I'm not going to get into that too much, but it's worth knowing it's there. Uh, mentions of the Fisher King. And, uh, and then there's Prince Valiant, which, I don't actually know a whole lot about Prince Valiant, but it, it is an American comic strip created by Hal Foster in 1937. I believe it is still being published. An epic adventure that has told a continuous story during its entire history. The full stretch of that story now totals more than 4,000 Sunday strips. Wow. Uh, yeah. And the, and the original full title of that comic is Prince Valiant in the days of King Arthur. So it's it's Arthurian material all worked in. And then, of course, from 1938 to 1958, T.H. White is publishing The Once and Future King Cycle. Uh, the Sword in the Stone is published in 1938, detailing the youth of Arthur. The Queen of Air and Darkness in 1939. Oh, or I think it was maybe published originally as The Witch in the Wood and then retitled when he... Um, published The Complete Cycle. I'm a little confused about that. Um, The Ill-Made knight in 1940, uh, dealing mainly with Lancelot. And then the fourth part, which was first published in the composite edition, collecting all four books and revising some of them slightly, is The Candle in the Wind. And that Composite Edition, The Once and Future Kings Cycle is published in 1958. The whole thing is based on Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur. That's where it sort of draws its source material. Uh, Roger Lancelin Green of the Inklings uh, is, is a, a popular author at this time. He publishes King Arthur and His Knights of the Round Table, a retelling of Arthurian legends um, intended for a child audience. He also published a retelling of um, like Robin Hood Lore, which I think might have been like where I read and learned Robin Hood lore. I think it might have been his book. Uh, His King Arthur book was first published by Puffin Books in 1953. It's been reprinted many times and was reissued again in 2008. So that one's kind of still in circulation. Um, I mean, as are many of these, but I uh, think I thought of him as like a little more vintage y. Um, Hmm. Yeah. The Dark is Rising. Is oh, yeah. yeah, that's that's Arthurian also. Mm-hmm. Um, is a young adult series by British author Susan Cooper. Five fantasy novels for older children and young adults um, published between 1965 and 1977. It depicts a struggle between forces of good and evil called the light and the dark, and it's based on Arthurian legend, Celtic mythology, Norse mythology, and English folklore. And it was it was pretty critically acclaimed. There's lots of children's and adult books about about King Arthur. A couple of others that stuck out for me. Um, uh, children's author Rosemary Sutcliffe had a number of Arthurian and Arthurian-adjacent novels for children. John Steinbeck wrote a retelling of the Arthurian legend, like more of a straight retelling, not like an East of Eden retelling. The Acts of King Arthur and His Noble Knights which was left unfinished at his death, um, but was published, po- published posthumously. He began his adaptation in November 1956, having long been a lover of Arthurian legend. And uh, and it was published in 1976. Um, Arthur Rex is a tragicomic novel by American author Thomas Berger in 1978. That one was published. Um, and then we get to The Mists of Avalon, I've read so few of these, it's a little bit embarrassing. Uh, I know that I know I should have read some of these. Um, the Mists of Avalon is a 1983 historical fantasy novel by American writer Marion Zimmer Bradley, in which she relates the Arthurian legends from the perspective of the female characters. hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, In stark contrast to most other retellings of the Arthurian tales, which tend to cast Morgan Le Fay as a distant, one-dimensional evil sorceress, uh, with little or no explanation given for her antagonism to the round table. In The Mists of Avalon, uh, Morgan is Presented as a woman with unique gifts and responsibilities at a time of political and spiritual upheaval, who is called upon to defend her indigenous heritage against impossible odds. That's a that's a summary I found. I, I haven't read it, although now I think I should. <laughs> um, I was to was ex-
0: say you put that really succinctly yeah. for not having read it.
1: Yeah, it was um it was expanded into a series um with Diana L. Paxson as an uncredited co-author on several sequels, um, and then Paxson took over writing the rest of the book um as the, as the primary author after Mary Ann Zimmer Bradley died. And I'll throw in one more here. Avalon High is a young adult novel by Meg Cabot uh, of The Princess Diaries fame. Um, it was published in 2005. And in that one, high school students find themselves to be reincarnations of characters from the Arthurian cycle. Uh, I think that one had like a, like a TV or film adaptation too. Uh, speaking of TV and film adaptations, Arthuriana is is uh, a big source for film and theater material. T.H. White's novel was adapted into the Learner and Lowe stage musical Camelot in 1960. And Walt Disney's animated film, The Sword in the Stone in 1963. Camelot, then in turn, the the musical uh, was made into a film of the same name in 1967. There were, you know, sort of more, more straight, like sort of serious drama versions of Arthurian films. Also, Robert Bresson's Lancelot du Duloc in 1974, Eric Romer's Percival Le Galois in 1978, John Borman's Excalibur in 1981. And then, of course, we have Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, mm. in 1975, which was itself adapted into the Broadway musical Spamalot. Another movie that came up this week on Jeopardy and inspired The Steep Dive is First Night in 1995, a movie based on the abduction of Guinevere by the knight Maligant, uh, featured Sean Connery as King Arthur, Richard Gere as Lancelot, Julia Ormond as Guinevere. There was a 2004 historical adventure film called King Arthur. There was. <laughs> yeah, it was not good. I'm I'm given to understand, I think. With Clive Owen as King Arthur, it had Joan Griffith, as Lancelot and Kira Knightley as Guinevere um mm-hmm. and of course there have been numerous adaptations of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court uh some of them more kind of straight others more wacky uh there was a film called Unidentified Flying o- Oddball also known as The Spaceman and King Arthur also known as A Spaceman in King Arthur's Court that was a 1979 <laughs> film <laughs> Uh, there was the 1995 <laughs> "A Kid in King Arthur's Court." Um, in 2001, there was um, "Black Knight" with it was Martin Lawrence, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. There was a there was a Soviet adaptation of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. It was called "New Adventures of a Yankee in King Arthur's Court," and that was uh, that was a 1988 film. Okay. Yeah, and there was a TV film starring Whoopi Goldberg in 1998, called A Night in Camelot. And then, of course, taking us to the present day, uh, there's the 2021 film The Green Knight, directed by David Lowery and starring Dev Patel as Gawain. Um, so that's by no means an exhaustive list of Arthur in film and literature. I have not even touched on music other than Wagner, Uh, television, board games, video games. There are loads of books and movies that are fairly direct retellings of Arthurian material that I didn't include here because there were so many that I tried to prioritize the ones that are especially well-known or influential or just kind of, you know, amused me. Um, Sorry. (laughs) I I made sure to get the well-known and influential ones. And then others that Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that'll that'll add some variety, you know. And then beyond that, there are other works that are Arthurian-inspired, but less directly. Or where Arthurian material is one small part of a larger whole. Like, every time travel series has a King Arthur <laughs> episode. Um, it does seem
0: that way, doesn't yeah, it? No,
1: I think they all do. Um, they have uh, to. But we've covered uh, the origin of, this, of these legends and some of the most famous major works of Arthuriana. So that's where we're going to stop. And then I'm going to cover some of the other, like more oblique stuff in the quiz okay so that'll work yeah um so are you ready for a quiz of course i am all right question one what american singer songwriter and activist sang her original song sweet sir galahad in her set at woodstock after debuting it on the smothers brothers comedy hour she worked closely with bob dylan and pete Seeger. And her Woodstock set also included "We Shall Overcome."
0: Oh, I know this. "We Shall Overcome." I can, I can hear it. I just can't remember who it was. Um. Oh, is it? Am I? Am I? Am I pushing myself down the wrong direction? Singer-songwriter activist makes me. W- <sighs> That makes me go to Nina Simone. So I'm going to go with Nina Simone.
1: Ooh, um, that's not correct. It's Joan Baez.
0: Joan Baez. Of course. I knew that. Oh, I knew that. I knew that. I don't know why I couldn't. Mm. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. She's actually slated for a Kennedy Center honor. Uh, Still, still, you know, with us, still working, still singing the ceremony to honor her and the other Kennedy Center honorees has been pushed back due to the pandemic. Um, But next time they have that, she will be honored. All right. Question two. King Arthur's name has been borrowed by a company which is now headquartered in Norwich, Vermont, where visitors can browse their wares at the company store or attend classes. What does this company sell? It might help to note that many of their signature products were sold out or very low in stock in March of 2020. They've since since been restocked. They're fine now.
0: Sure. I don't know if this is too obvious, but feels like that would be masks.
1: Mm. That's not a bad guess, but this is the King Arthur Flower Company. Okay. Yeah. Um yeah, so they they sell flour. They sell baking uh, flour, baking products, baking goods. Mm-hmm. and, Like um yeah, so they're they're a baking specialty company. Um they were founded in 1790 in Boston as Henry Wood and Company. <gasps> oh, and then... King Arthur.
0: I know King Arthur flour. Mhm. Yeah, we have some <laughs> in the cabinet cuz it has like it's like it's uh it, we have the like the the self-rising kinds.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Um, I should have left it. I was, well, maybe it wouldn't have helped you with masks. I was going to be, I was going to be like, what never bleached, never bromated product do they sell? Oh, well, Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. So they were actually, uh, they were not founded as King Arthur Flower because it was 1790 and people didn't really care about Arthurian legend so much then. Um, But in 1896, one of the co-owners saw one of the King Arthur musicals I didn't mention (laughs) And they rebranded as the King Arthur Flower Company, and they've been the King Arthur Flower Company ever since. Okay. Um, Yeah. Question three. There's a series of children's books that did not come up on any of the lists of Arthurian inspired literature that I saw as I was preparing this deep dive, which is surprising because it's a popular children's series uh, for like early elementary readers, I think. Um, And it features It features two children, Jack and Annie Smith, being sent on time-traveling adventures, first by Morgan Le Fay and later by Merlin. What is this series by Mary Pope Osborne?
0: Uh, That is a series that we like to listen to with uh, our older daughter. And that is... Is it the... It's the Magic Treehouse?
1: Yes, it's the Magic (sighs) Treehouse.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The Magic Tree House also has a musical adaptation, um, not like not like a Broadway musical, like one of those you know sort of short musicals for kids. You know, that mm. um, toured anyway. Um, the musical is uh, based on the book Christmas in Camelot, so that's all Arthurian stuff too, um, and. Uh, <sighs> Our kids went through a phase of listening to the Magic Treehouse musical, including I think three times in a row on a road trip. Um, nice. But it's but it's not it's not bad. It's not a bad musical. It's okay. All right. All right, so you're at ten points. Question four. What nineteen eighties animated television television series included an episode titled A Decepticon Raider in King Arthur's Court? <laughs> This is the more obscure of the franchise's King Arthur-inspired material. There was also a 2017 film starring Mark Wahlberg that was apparently terrible.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen the Wahlberg movie. Uh, that, that would be Transformers.
1: That is Transformers, yes. And the, the movie in question is Transformers The Last Night. It was apparently nominated for 10 Razzie Awards. Okay. All right, so you're at 20. Turning this around. Um, All right. Question five. Arthuriana features prominently in comics. I only touched briefly on Prince Valiant and not on any of the other stuff, but there's King Arthur material all over uh, comics. Um, So what Dark Horse character's backstory includes being descended from King Arthur via Mordred? This character was played in film by Ron Perlman in 2004. And by David Harbour in a 2019 reboot.
0: Ron Perlman in 2004. Was there a reboot of that?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because I know... I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I remember what Ron Perlman played.
1: Um, Ron Perlman was also in the 2008...
0: Sequel to sequel, it? Sequel, yes. Okay, then, yeah, then that I'm that, pretty sure that's Hellboy.
1: That is Hellboy. Yes. Hellboy on his human side is descended from King Arthur.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Uh, I did not really pay much attention to the movie. So if that was mentioned, uh, I wouldn't have caught it.
1: I don't think it came up in the movie from what I saw. Um, That's all in the in the comic stuff. But like, I figured you probably were not like, like asking like deep, detailed questions of like, you know, Hellboy, Mm -hmm. like this series, like issue number six, like felt a little uh, a little heading more toward the minutia side of trivia. <laughs> um, sure. So I figured I, I figured I'd uh, make a connection to a, um, a more familiar popular culture rather than be like, "Have you read all of this series?" Like I, I have not. <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. All right. So you're at thirty points, and uh, we're gonna call our final category board games.
0: Okay. I do like board games, and I have played board games so i'm gonna bet it all
1: all right so for 60 points shadows over camelot is an arthurian themed board game published by days of wonder it's an example of what type of game other games of this type include pandemic hanabi arkham horror and ironically, one of the two sets of rules of the Landlord's Game, which was the precursor to Monopoly.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know if this is this might be too general of what you're for what you're talking about, but it's a cooperative game.
1: That is exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um... Sweet.
0: Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. I've heard of I've heard about that from the uh, from the Landlord's Game.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So um, the Landlord's Game. Um, was an anti-capitalist game. Um, (laughs) There were two sets of rules. One in which you try to um, drive your opponents into bankruptcy while accruing as much money as you can. And in the other set of rules, you try to collaborate to build prosperity. The concept was stolen and only the first set of rules <laughs> made it into uh, yeah. the game that we all know and hate. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I haven't played Shadows Over Camelot. I have played actually all of the other three I mentioned, although I tried to find sort of the ones that seemed like they come up a lot or like have gotten a lot of awards or like, a you know, of the mm-hmm. of the list of cooperative games I looked at. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, in a cooperative game, you and the other players are collaborating to try to beat the game together, as you, Kyle, know. Have you played Hanabi before?
0: I have not played Hanabi. Hanabi, is, pandemic.
1: Yeah, Hanabi is really fun um, and and quick once you once you learn it, which is nice. In Hanabi, you are fireworks manufacturers trying to. <laughs> Uh, get all of your like fireworks made before <laughs> before you uh, before before there is an explosion. Nice or something like that. Arkham Horror, I've only w- played once and we got very very confused. Um, but Pandemic, Arkham Horror has a
0: lot to it.
1: Yeah, I went back and forth about like betrayal at House on the Hill has like
0: has the cooperative beginning, but then it's the, not.
1: Yeah, the, but then it's like everyone against like whoever. <laughs> Uh, Which is the best
0: part. I love being the traitor. All
1: right. So, listeners, you want to play Betrayal at House on the Hill.
0: It's so
1: so good. good. And it's
0: different every time.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. So this has been board game nerdery (laughs) we're we're a betrayal at house on the hill fan cast now um yes yes Uh, no seriously um thank you for uh for listening to my deep dive and making a podcast with me and uh geeking out about board games and thank you listeners for spending your time with us uh, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts leave a rating or review if you would if you want to check out our patreon it's patreon.com slash potent potables and if you have friends who watch jeopardy let them know about our podcast
0: you can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at PotentPotables1. Our email address is PotentPotablesCast at gmail.com, and our website is PotentPod.com. We will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy Recap. Uh, so until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.